Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I am joined, as always, coughing away in the corner there by TLS commissioning editor and culture guru, Thea Lenarduzzi. Each week we'll be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS, plus arts and cultural events. Coming up on the show this week, the cover of the TLS shows a rather plangent-looking pig asking the question, why eat meat? It illustrates a piece by Julian Bagini, which Thea will pronounce better than I can, Thea. How do you say it? I think he's British, so, oh, I mean, I could say Bagini like. would be fine. Bagini. <laughs> Julian Bagini, writing about the ethics of our relationships with animals. TLS philosophy editor Tim Crane will join us to discuss them. From flesh to dust, mirroring all our inevitable futures, Judith Flanders has written about an exhibition in the British Parliament on the ethics of dust. She will explain what that is all about. We will also be talking Shakespeare, which is never a bad thing. Neil Forsyth has reviewed the reissue of two books by Victor Kiernan on Shakespeare as a political figure. He'll be joining us to talk about that. And finally, instead of our usual poem, we want to talk about Turkey. Journalist William Armstrong was in Istanbul the night of the failed coup against the democratically elected autocrat Erdogan. He has written brilliantly on it for the TLS this week and will join us from Turkey for his impressions. So, I hope you are all feeling hungry. At the TLS this week has a long consideration of the question that begins, what are the rights and wrongs of eating meat? And ends with, how do we judge our relationships with animals more generally? It has been written by Julian Bagini, as Thea's told me to pronounce it, reviewing four books with these titles. The Moral Equality of Humans and Animals, The Moral Complexities of Eating Meat, Beastly Morality and The Ethics of Killing Animals. He boils rather brilliantly the question down to this. How can you compare Hammy the Hamster playing on his wheel and Miles Davis playing his trumpet? Tim Crane, philosophy editor of the TLS and Knightsbridge professor of philosophy at Cambridge, joins Thea and me now. Tim, do you fancy answering how you compare Hammy the Hamster playing on his wheel with Miles Davis playing his trumpet? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, of course, we can compare these things in all sorts of different ways. I mean, I think the context in which Julian introduced that was the different kinds kinds of pleasures that um, animals and humans can can have and the problems that this gives for the doctrine of utilitarianism where utilitarianism says that basically that goodness is a matter of the amount of pleasure in the world and badness is a matter of the amount of pain or suffering and on the face of it that looks like a very appealing idea until you ask yourself what an amount of pleasure is and what how do you compare different pleasures. John Stuart Mill distinguished 
between what he called higher pleasures and lower pleasures, um, but clearly there are many grades between that and uh, many grades of pleasure between the pleasure of Hammy the Hamster and Miles Davis playing his trumpet. And the other example he gives is, which I think uh, crystallises, if cats have a greater capacity for pleasure than us because they have more simple lives, utilitarianism would therefore lead us down the route that we should have more cats and fewer people. Yeah, so there's huge difficulties with this with this utilitarian view in implementing it. People have tried to do it, and some very brilliant people have tried to do it, but um, it has all these really strange paradoxical consequences. Would it be better to have a world, as, as you say, with lots of very, very simple creatures having an enormous amount of very simple pleasure, or a smaller number of com- more complex creatures having more complex pleasure? We don't really know how to answer that question, actually, really. And, sorry, sorry, didn't Jeremy Bentham, wasn't his view that all pleasures and pains were, were basically equal? That's right, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. doesn't obviously tally with our the kind of the subjectivity of our emotions and the fact that we're exactly. much more likely to feel compassion for something that we see see as being attractive, be it, you know, a cute rabbit or a majestic horse. That's true. I mean, very few people care about the slugs that they kill in the garden mm. when they accidentally walk on them at night. Um, so, and that's why animals, in some way, it's not just a academic question, this, because utilitarianism on the surface is very attractive and you say of course we should be pursuing the greater good for the greatest number and that includes animals and then you start trying to distinguish between well do we mean that about all animals what about a mosquito that carries malaria uh, should we be yeah. considered that uh, that that life is precious and actually in the end nobody regards all life as precious legal or very few people do exactly whatever moral demand there is in vegetarianism it can't be that it can't be the, equal- the equality of all all life. That simply cannot be. We should disclose here, actually, Tim, that um, uh, Thea is a reformed vegetarian. <laughs> That's why I keep on interrupting. I've obviously got well, an argument in me somewhere. <laughs> so am I, too. I spent 10 years in the vegetarian wilderness. So did so I. I. 10 years. That must be the cut-off point. <laughs> ten year, the 10-year vegetarian itch <laughs> you're both having. Well, what stopped you? In fact, what stopped both of you? Because it's interesting. But was it a, if it's a moral stance, how did your view of the morality of it change? There were two things. I mean, one was um, I realised that I had lots of different, rather conflicted moral views that were leading me to my vegetarianism. So one one was a kind of utilitarianism or a concern about animal suffering. And I gradually became, came to realise that the, the issue, if you were concerned about animal suffering, that didn't necessarily imply anything about whether you should eat them. You should be concerned about the conditions in which they live or the ways in which they die. But on the other hand, I also had this kind of purity vegetarian attitude, which was what, what I call the kosher vegetarian um, view, which is that um, I cannot let any meat enter the temple of my body. <laughs> so if, if um, someone cooks a soup and it's made from a beef stock, even though the animal is already dead and there's nothing I can do to change all that, I will not eat the soup. And these are these two ideas, the, the utilitarian idea and the that that is to say, or the concern about suffering more broadly, even if it's not utilitarian, and the kosher vegetarian, they're very different ideas. And I realized I didn't believe either of them. The other thing I realized without before we get on to Thea and her reasons was that um, there's an enormous value to be had in eating the greatest things that human beings have created. And a lot of those involve meat. Mm, which links into the point of of many of these animals, you know, the fact that they wouldn't be alive if it if it weren't for us. That's very true. Yeah, but also presumably the utilitarian argument could be if you take pleasure in eating the the, the greatest things, that does include meat. So that's, that's almost an argument for spreading pleasure by eating more meat. Mm. It looks like it, doesn't it? Because yeah, but then you come against this impossible problem of how do you measure the amount of pleasure that I get when I eat a great dish. Well, I mean, my, my, so my thinking went something yeah. like this. It was, it was, it was sort of along the, 
the greatest or rather the the greatest happiness principle so i guess i i didn't eat meat but i would yeah. i'd suspend my vegetarianism whenever i would go home to my grandma's in italy for easter <laughs> and i think so well, my reasoning smart. went something like i dislike the idea of causing displeasure to my nonna by refusing her signature dishes the dishes that i'd grown up on much more than i than i felt the displeasure over an anonymous animal dying you know the idea of sharing the same dishes as my whole family as we always had round a table that was for me stronger and i would also reason that you know i'd abstained for so long every other day of the year that to suspend it for two three days of the year was was kind of fine you know it was all right to have a little bit of a lapse i'm sure my taste buds played a significant role too of course (laughs) Yeah. It, it comes down to, I suppose, Bajini's point where, where he says at the end that, I mean, there must be surely some good in, in the idea of, of eating meat being troubling. You yeah. know, if, as long as you're feeling that there's something to think about in what you're doing. So, you yeah. know, that, that then translates yeah. to asking questions about provenance. Well, let me give that quote. It's a really interesting quote to, that, that the piece ends on. This isn't Disneyland and living authentically as an adult requires us fully to embrace the bittersweet nature of many of our most profound pleasures. But Tim, I suppose if we're looking at it from an academic point of view, does it matter to ethical philosophy that you end up with what amounts to a woolly, no pun intended, answer there, which is to say it's all in the uncertain. It's it, you have to relish the uncertainty, you relish the discomfort because there is no clear cut answer. Uh, no, I don't think so. No, I think I mean I think a real ethical philosophy ought to be one that we can live by, uh, that we can actually make sense of our natural reactions to things and our judgments, which are clearly aren't wicked or evil, but some consequentialists are going to say that they are. We need an ethics that accommodates the complexity of the questions that we're dealing with. And I think, actually, in some ways, there's no more complex a question than the question of how we live with animals. That's interesting. And the other interesting thing that comes out, the ethics of death itself, you've both touched yeah. on this, both you, you and Thea. But Jeannie makes the point that death is not a welfare issue. Whatever responsibilities we might have to animals, not killing them is not one of them. Uh, not least because many animals which are farmed are only brought into the world to be killed. So as you take away their life, it's a life that you yourself have given them. Uh, do you yeah. buy that, that actually the most important thing is, is morality about how animals live rather than the question of killing them or not? I agree completely with that. Yes, I think that's a really important point. And I mean, there are many different ways of keeping animals for food. There are many different ways of killing them. My brother keeps pigs in, in, in the countryside and he, he has some pigs which live in a large amount of space and walk around in the mud all, all day and live happily. And then one day the mobile abattoir will come and um, stun them painlessly and then they will be killed and butchered. And this strikes me as not a bad way for a pig to live. And if nobody did that, those pigs would never gain existence at all. That's true too. Although I, I find that a harder idea to be moved by in a way because... Um, thinking about, as it were, merely possible pigs coming into existence and whether it's a good thing for a merely possible pig to come into existence rather than not is a bit... That's a bit too abstract, I think, even for a philosopher. Uh, One other thing that comes out in the piece, uh, is there any value in your view to determining this question of whether animals themselves have morals? Because there's a bit in it that talks about elephant sea bullfights because they appear to be governed by a kind of ethic. Do you think it matters that we we think whether animals have... Because it's it's, it's a kind of a a slightly more definitive way of asking whether animals have souls or animals have feelings and emotions, isn't it? Do you think there's value in us trying to understand that, how much we should empathise with that side of animal life? I find this very hard to get moved by, I must say. I'm... I'm, um, But who who knows? I mean, there may be things here that I'm just not seeing, but it seems to me that... To call these pieces of behaviour 
kinds of primitive moral behavior, or I think is, is very misleading about what's particular about morality, which is, um, and one of the things that particular about morality is the idea that every human life is worth something. And this is something which, so to think of animals as moral agents, you'd have to think, animals would have to think at some level that other animals were worth something or some, something like that. And I, I find that very difficult to get my head around that. But, but I should say I haven't studied this, this stuff about animal morality, so I'd be interested to know what they actually say. But so the, general, the, general, the general argument there is that although evolutionary theory argues that the conditions needed to construct what we describe as moral behaviour um, are rooted in our shared natural origins, we tend to assume as humans that we're the only ones to have morality. So we're making these, these kind of species-centric assumptions and and added to that is there's the idea that if there were such a thing as beastly morality as one of the books calls it um, that did evolve it would have to along evolve along the same lines as our own so we're basically negating the idea of multiple moralities two things here i mean one you know, so one is the question about whether any morality has to be like our morality then what's what that raises is the question of well what makes it a morality at all I mean, animals have a form of social life and they have forms of bonding. Why do we want to call this what they have, some kind of morality or not? And I think the second question is, well, I mean, some things did just evolve and some things are special and human morality might be one of them. And it makes the point, uh, Tim, which I think comes out throughout this piece, that when you start thinking about animals, you end up thinking back to what it is to be a human being, which is yeah. kind of very useful in itself. I should also point out that paired with Bagini's piece is a weird and wonderful review by Ian Sansom on an unlikely glut of two Canadian books on stakes. Sansom asks the legitimate question, why on earth do we continue to crave and consume books about why people crave and consume meat? He also poses this puzzler, which is probably a good note to finish on, why not just have a banana? <laughs> Which I think it some way has some deeper meaning, if only we could find it, too. Yeah, I mean, you can't put a banana in a cassoulet. You can't. For one thing. Your grandmother would not be happy with (laughs) simply the answer theory, why not just have a banana? (laughs) Tim Crane, thank you so much for for joining us to go through. It's a really interesting, it's a lovely piece, and it's an interesting issue. Tim, thanks very much. Thanks, Tim. It was Coriolanus, of course, who said that meat was made for mouths, but he did so in the context of upbraiding the commons for their complaints about being hungry. Shakespeare is, of course, ubiquitous this year, and a jolly good thing that is too. The quadricentenary of Shakespeare's death has also brought with it the reissue of two books by Victor Kiernan, dubbed by Christopher Hill one of the best historians of the 17th century England. In the TLS this week, Neil Forsyth reviews two of Kiernan's books, Shakespeare, Poet and Citizen, and Eight Tragedies of Shakespeare. Uh, Joining Thea and me now is Neil Forsyth. Neil, one of the striking things about your piece, I think, is how much Kiernan dwells on the political Shakespeare, especially the two opposing classes of the poor and the aristocratic. Now, I know from reading that Coriolanus is often cited as an example of sort of Shakespeare's own personal disgust for the many-headed multitude. But neither you nor Kiernan seems to see it in that, in, in that way. That's often a simplistic interpretation of Shakespeare, which you don't really think holds, holds truth. Well, yes, Kiernan's view of Shakespeare is immensely complicated. The politics in Shakespeare doesn't boil down to what uh, happens in Coriolanus or what he says here and there or what Timon says. The Coriolanus references 
is amusing. Kieran doesn't agree with the view of Coriolanus, which makes him, which which suggests that Shakespeare is himself suspicious of the masses at all. One of the striking things that you get from the review of what Kiernan said is the importance of minor characters in Shakespeare, real people. Um, and instead of just having them as functionaries, he gives them three dimensions, he gives them opinions, he gives them backstories, and then they kind of deserve their place in the play. Absolutely, yes. I mean, there are lots of examples of uh, him elaborating on what would otherwise be simply a plot device. Uh, Romeo and Juliet is a in Romeo and Juliet is poor, starveling man, and we get a sense of that, even though he's a very briefly represented character. I mean, he comes across he, the kinds of things that are said to him and by him about uh, life in general or something that uh, Kiernan seizes upon that and as and other moments to elaborate and to suggest that uh, uh, Shakespeare has a sympathetic view of uh, ordinary humanity, of the poor in particular. Um, but it's not a, a kind of straightforward, the poor are good guys and the and the rich are, are not. Uh, on the contrary, he's very subtle in his analysis of, of the play's uh, politics. You quote Ruskin, uh, who says Shakespeare has no heroes, only heroines, and Kiernan says to be uh, the, the female characters in Shakespeare, to be fully women, they must pretend to be men. Um, mm. And you sort of quote that as an example of a sort of Kiernan's feminism. I just wonder how feminist is that as a, as a notion? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, of course. I mean, what what actually, I mean, what he's referring to is what actually happens in the plays when um, characters like Portia turn into or play the roles of men and dress as men uh, in order to have an impact on public life. But it's true um, that when, and it, it, it's a part of the interest of uh, Kiernan's approach, is that he shows that Shakespeare is sort of alternating between the histories and the comedies, even though he discusses the comedies and the histories separately, and. Um, one gets a sense partly that uh, he thinks of the comedies as being light relief and that he doesn't really take them all that seriously. He can't, for instance, quite believe in the ways in which Antonio in The Merchant of Venice, a play which, uh, by the way, uh, is very important for his sort of Marxist view of history since it talks so much about money, just as Timon talks about gold, he can't quite believe and he's quite funny about this, that Antonio can't uh, sell his house. I mean, that a man so uh, accustomed to the ways of uh, capitalism can't just, uh, in the Merchant of Venice, can't just sell his house, or that he's got, he's, he questions whether he's got no mortgage to fall back on. <laughs> and uh, so he can't quite believe the, the plots in which, um, of course, Shakespeare I involves his, his characters. Um, and uh, yet the fact that Venice is populated by, um, like London, by greedy moneylenders is something that uh, Kiernan makes a great deal of. Uh, and, and, and that, I suppose, comes back to this, uh, this point about political Shakespeare. Uh, Neil, thank you so much indeed. Thank okay. you. Thank you Bye. very much thank for, you. The, for the call. Because the piece then says, to be fully women, they must pretend to be men, a paradox in which Shakespeare may be said to compress the whole dilemma of modern yeah. womanhood and emancipation. So, emancipation. So he's not saying that Shakespeare wants that to be the case. No, it's no. Shakespeare's reflecting that, that is the case. Do, exactly. you, do you buy that? Well, I mean, I think it's a really interesting point. I mean, because you could, if you're feeling particularly generous, you could sort of see it as, as Kiernan saying that to be a woman... Or Shakespeare, even meaning that to 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 be a woman, you must feel that you're living in a society that views you as being at a disadvantage, 
and that expects you to sometimes at least pretend to be a man. So to kind of internalise that struggle of knowing that you're not a man and, and sometimes you should you are expected to pretend to be. So you're internalising that struggle. Like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I can't, I can't speak for Kinnan at all. And obviously, he's he's not with us, so he can't he can't defend himself. But it is interesting that Kinnan was writing Shakespeare, Poet and Citizen. I think from the mid 1940s, yeah. right up until the 1990s, mid 90s or early 90s. So he lived through at least two waves of feminism, including the kind of the women's lib of the 1960s. So, I mean, that he must have internalised those, he must have been open to so many different arguments. And insofar as that quote refers to Shakespeare, I mean, it's the women who act like men that tend to kind of get into trouble normally. I Maybe. mean, thinking of, you know, Lady Macbeth. Yeah, unsex and, me here and, and, exactly. and, and all of that. Yeah. So it's, it's a really, I don't know, it's a really interesting... And it's also the fact that I suppose he's writing, he's a playwright, he's a jobbing playwright, writing at a time when there weren't any female actresses. Mm. So whatever else, he, it's, it's, it's easy to say he might have had various views on, on the status of women, but he's also writing parts that were going to be played by teenage boys. Mm. Um, and he shows a massive amount of confidence with that great bit in, in Antony and Cleopatra where she says, in the future... I'm going to be played by a pip-squeaking boy mm. in the posture of a whore, which would have been spoken by a pip-squeaking boy. Mm. His views on marriage and women in a world which revolves around private property is very interesting. I think, you know, Kinnan at one point says that women should, um, by rights, be nat- natural socialists. Go on. Well, I mean, presumably that we're kind of bought and sold into marriage. So we're, we're private property par excellence, you know. So feminism should be socialism in the sense of breaking down uh, the barrier of ownership. and That's interesting. He was, yeah. was he saying that in context of Shakespeare? Was, was yeah, he says general. that towards the end of the piece. I've not got the piece in front of me. I've got it here. Women, Kiernan says, ought to be natural socialists, considering that in all societies founded on private ownership, they have themselves been treated very much as a species of private property. Exactly. And then, you know, in so many of Shakespeare's plays, marriage is kind of the, the, the flip-flopping centre of the action. Or the happy ending. Yeah, or the happy ending. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Was Shakespeare a feminist? We'll come back to that at some other point. No call, doubt. Us, call us welcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of Shakespeare, as Hamlet put it, we may feel that we are the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, but we are, in the end, the quintessence of dust. Well, the British Houses of Parliament, a dusty institution if ever there was one, has put on an exhibition by the artist Jorge Otero Pylos, which Thea should probably pronounce. That was good. You accept that? <laughs> that was great. An acceptable pronunciation there. Thank you very much. With the intriguing title, this is the exhibition's title, The Ethics of Dust. Judith Flanders has reviewed it in the TLS this week and joins Thea and me now. The Ethics of Dust, Judith. What on earth is going on here? Well, it's... a uh totally superficially dusty proposition that when you see it is completely gripping. Jorge Otero Palos is a preservationist by trade. He works as an architectural preservationist. He teaches at Columbia University in New York and he is also an artist. So the piece he works on is where art where preservation, where the built environment and history collide. Okay. And, and what does that mean for this? What do you actually, what do you see? What's, what's, what, well, one, one of the very exciting things, this is a piece that is for him in many parts. He... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Originally did a piece in 2009 in northern Italy, and then for the Venice Biennale, he repeated it in Venice, where he used preservation techniques to remove the dirt from the facades of buildings. Apparently what they do is they take this liquid latex, they gunge it across the facade, it dries, and is then peeled off and discarded, and the building is nice and bright, spanking new, clean. However, Otero Paios wants us to think about many years, stroke centuries, and what those buildings have weathered, which is being taken off and discarded. So on the Doge's Palace, on one of the walls, he did this latex schmear, and then peeled it off, and instead of throwing this material away, these latex sheets, this great 40-foot latex sheet was hung on display nearby so that you could actually see the centuries' accumulation. In effect, what would the Doge's palace have seen if it looked out? There it is on display. And he's done it again. And he's done that with the Westminster Hall, which is the medieval site of it. Indeed. In, in, House um, of in Venice, he was not able to hang the sheet. It hung in the Arsenale rather than by the Doge's palace. However, in London, he was given access to Westminster Hall, which is 11th century. It's one of the oldest parts of the Palace of Westminster, the Houses of Parliament. And it has a famous 15th century hammer beam roof. But instead, the artist stroke preservationist looked at one of the walls. He did the latex spread on one of the walls of this 11th century building, peeled it off, and it hangs now on display a meter, a meter and a half away. So in effect, it forms um, its own little corridor. You walk between the cleaned wall and the dirty latex. 
it's quite magnificent. You point out that this 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 kind of whole this whole thing sort of hinges on on a, a dusty old debate, I guess, that in the fact that for much of human history, desire has been connected to the new rather than the old and the dusty. But that in the 19th century, opinion about what was authentic, what was an authentic presentation of buildings, became um, divided between those who advocated for restoration and those who believed that repair by its very nature destroyed the integrity of a building. And um, John Ruskin, who featured in our discussion just now of Shakespeare, um, pops up in your piece too um, in connection to this. So what what does Ruskin have to tell us about the well, ethics Ru- of dust? Ru- Ruskin is the originator of the phrase ethics of dust. Mm. Um, he wrote a book, I'm afraid it's a textbook for 12-year-old girls on crystallography, so it <laughs> didn't hit the bestseller list. <laughs> I know it very well, Judith, don't worry. Uh, it's your bedside reading, yeah. I'm sure. But Ruskin's concern as the Industrial Age progressed He is, of course, in the first generation of the great sweep of the Industrial Revolution, becomes more and more concerned that history is vanishing. And in the Stones of Venice, he wrote of going and looking at the ancient monuments in Venice. And instead of seeing the weathering, say, of buildings as damage, he began to see it as, in effect, a a badge of honor. Look at me, I have survived. He has that lovely phrase as well, time stains. Exactly. This is not damage, this is the stain of time. What Otero Pios, I think, is trying to do with his connection using uh, Ruskin's title is to the Industrial Revolution as well as being one of the... being the age in which restoration became a normative practice instead of knocking down an Elizabethan manor house and building a Georgian one or taking a Jacobean house and slapping on an Edwardian facade. Now it was the idea of let's mend what we have. Let us make it continue to survive. Linking to Ruskin, however, is also this notion we have because of the coal age that this patina of age is not a sign of pride. It's dirt. It's pollution, a word that begins to be used at the time. He was credited as as being a sort of an early example of what we would call environmentalism, sustainability. But but also, is it something I, I remember in, I think, probably the 70s, A lot of buildings in London, which I had known as being entirely black, were sandblasted. And suddenly we discovered that the Natural History Museum was actually sort of pink and blue. (laughs) And uh, it it was extraordinary and it was wonderful. But what Otero Pios is saying is, what happens to that dirt? We we, we just throw it down the drain? It's that famous anthropological definition of dirt. Dirt is simply matter in the wrong place. When you go back, you started with Shakespeare. When I was looking at the piece, what kept going through my head was that very, very beautiful 17th century poem that a widow wrote for her husband's tomb, which ends, my dearest dust, I come. Mm. She will follow him and we will all be dust. The, the piece was commissioned by Art Angel as well, the arts organisation that, as you say, brought us Rachel Wideread's House, which was a, sculpt- a sculptural comment on regeneration and Michael Landy's Break It Down, comment on consumerism. 
does it feel as politically weighted as those as those works? Um, I went to see it. The opening of the exhibition coincided, I think it was the day after the Brexit vote. Mm. And so there you are in the oldest section of the Houses of Parliament. We are standing in Parliament. The piece is made in Parliament, out of Parliament. It is the very fabric of the building. And in many ways, the other thing it looked like to me was the Berlin Wall. We had this sort of great thing that if you walked between the latex hanging and the wall that was cleaned, you're in this corridor, you can't see the hall, you can't see the roof, you can't see the people going through. You are entirely blocked off. And so what's wonderful about this piece is how it opens itself to so many interpretations. That's lovely. Well, Jude, I think we'll have to leave it there. That's fascinating. There's a lovely picture of it in, in the paper. It's a very striking-looking mm, thing. I really, really want to go. Uh, I think you should. I, think I might go, go as well. I think the idea of, of, of dust as what we leave behind is an interesting one. And uh, it's a great piece, Judith. We're very grateful for it. And thank you for joining us to discuss it today. Thank you. Thanks, Judith. Bye. Take care, Judith. Bye. No, I think I might go. Uh, would you go? I'd go yeah, to absolutely. That. I really, really want to go. I think, I mean, the idea of the corridor and, you know, that being a space which is sort of trapped between the old and the new... He restores as well, you know, restores the old as well as creating the new as an artist and conservator. It's just a, ten- a tension between the two. Ideas. And it's kind of about the anti prettification of stuff, isn't mm. it? That you have to value the bits of, uh, that people have left behind, which is kind of a good way of looking yeah. at history generally, I think. Normally at this point, we would end the show by having a poem, but I think we want to this week take time to reflect instead on the events in Turkey. And this week uh, in the TLS, we have a really lovely freelance piece by William Armstrong, the editor of the Hurayat newspaper, who gives us an account of what it was like to be in Istanbul, that hot, noisy Friday night when there was a coup attempt against Erdogan, a coup attempt that failed. He tells of the delirious cheers of the flag-waving multitudes, the honking of horns to commemorate what was this failure, this failure to to unseat Erdogan, not a popular president, but one who, on the other hand, was democratically elected. It's a story with no happy endings, of course, no good versus bad. Erdogan has now been left in a position of greater power than ever before and the opportunity to strengthen his already autocratic hold on the country. Uh, To quote a line from The Wire, if you come at the king, you best not miss. But they did, and they did, and we now shall see the consequences, which at the minute includes whole swathes of the judiciary being purged, whole swathes of academia being purged, neither of whom had anything to do with the coup, but are symptomatic of the fact that Erdogan is now even more entrenched in power. Uh, William, you've written, um, I mean, it's such a beautiful piece uh, on this for the paper, but perhaps we might start by you taking us through your reflections of that Friday night, the night of the of the failed coup. I mean, it was an extraordinary night. Well, extraordinary is an, an understatement, really. It was completely unexpected that something like this would happen. Turkey's been, you know, for months, really. I mean, there's been quite a lot of tension around, even political violence. Uh, there's been... A lot of um, uh, concerns, of course, about Erdogan uh, and the government and uh, this kind of tightening grip on power. And uh, there's, of course, been this uh, ongoing conflict in the southeast uh, with the the PKK, the uh, the Kurdish militant group. 
And this is the kind of background, but I don't think anybody was expecting a, a military coup attempt. So it really did take a lot of people by surprise. But um, I was at home at the time when uh, when news started coming through that um, t- uh, soldiers were, were appearing uh, on streets. They'd closed the Bosphorus Bridge, which crosses the Bosphorus Strait, which separates uh, the European and Asian side of Istanbul. And uh, there was also uh, reports from Ankara about uh, jets that were flying low. And uh, as time progressed, it just seemed like there were more and more across the country, there was more and more mobilization of military units and air force jets. I mean, obviously, there were a lot of rumors going around, people wondering whether there was a a terrorist attack or there was all kinds of uh, wild speculation of uh, other things. But it pretty soon became clear that there was uh, uh, an attempted military coup underway. And um, one of the one of the earliest things that uh, the the plotters did was um, take over Terre Terre, which is the the state broadcaster here. They read out a declaration uh, announcing that they'd taken control. Obviously, it was a it turned out to be a premature declaration, but um, this is when people realised that it was a serious thing. They announced a, a curfew so nobody could go onto the streets. Uh, but uh, I heard outside that there were a lot of people. Uh, still out. So uh, I went out myself uh, to, to see what was going on. It's yeah. interesting, sorry, that you mentioned the takeover of the TV channel and the declaration that they make there and, and that sort of the use of old media, whereas you mentioned yourself being absorbed in the drama on Twitter. Social media has played a pretty interesting role here and I'm thinking in particular of Erdogan's use of FaceTime, for example. Yeah, it's, uh, that was one of the more surreal moments. I mean, uh, I was actually out at the time. I just left. Uh, I was walking towards Taksim Square, and he was he was talking on one of the one of the private broadcasters, CNN Turk, and um, he was using FaceTime. And the presenter was holding the uh, iPhone screen uh, to the camera, and uh, there was Erdogan's face uh, addressing the nation, telling people to. To, to resist this uh, this coup attempt. And where were you? Uh, where, it, where were you then? Where, where were you watching that, William? Well, I was out at the time, but obviously there were shops with TVs and there were people gathering around them, and it was clear that there was something pretty extraordinary happening. This is one of the great ironies of the night. He has got a reputation now, uh, President Erdogan, for being against uh, social media. He's mm. he's closed down Twitter, and um, he said before that it's. Uh, it's, it's his enemy, and uh, here he was. And if you think about it, the, the military was taking over the state broadcaster, which is a very old-school way of doing things, taking over the state broadcaster and giving an announcement. And uh, Erdogan himself was using this, uh, this new media of FaceTime to address uh, people. And uh, everybody was getting uh, SMS messages as well from the presidency telling them to resist. And uh, Wow. The other thing was um, Turkcell, which is one of the, the main mobile providers here, updated everybody's data on their smartphones. Uh, they gave people extra data so that they That's would be astounding. able to go out. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a mobilization on both sides, which made the whole thing uh, remarkable. I've still got on my phone um, the extra data that was given on Friday night, so um, I'm still using that. Uh, when, when you're on the streets, and because one of the things I think fascinates about this is these, the young soldiers that you saw, who presumably were being directed uh, by people above them, but they are confronting their own people. What was your take on that when you saw these tanks, these guns, this mobilisation of the army? But when you looked at them, what, were their beha- what was their behaviour? Did they look frightened? Did they look like they knew what they were doing? Did you think this is a coup that's... that's 
that is going to succeed because the, the army was clearly acting in a certain way. How did that feel on the night? I got to Taksim Square. Uh, I live about a 10-minute walk away from Taksim Square. So I got there uh, fairly quickly. But uh, by the time that I got there, there were soldiers already on the square. But I was actually expecting more. It seemed it was almost surreal because there were only a few soldiers sort of dotted around the perimeter. Behind them were some tanks. Uh, but these soldiers were obviously on their military service. They were very young and looked very confused. They really, I mean, frankly, they didn't. They looked like they didn't really know what they were do- doing there. And they looked very scared. And uh, after, in the aftermath, uh, there were reports that... Uh, some of the soldiers had said, uh, some of these conscript soldiers had told uh, people that uh, they'd been told that they were doing a, a drill, basically a training exercise. Other ones were obviously forced to do it and told by their commanders that if they didn't obey orders, they'd, uh, they'd you know, be reprimanded or, uh, or worse. And um, that was one of the surreal things that, that struck me when I got to Taksim Square was... Um, the, the, the fact that there were not that many soldiers around. I mean, if you hear of a military coup, you expect there to be this kind of mass mobilization of tanks rolling down the street. The numbers seem fairly small. Were you um, frightened? Were you frightened? Not really. I mean, there was it was more just an air of surreality about. There were so many people still knocking around on the streets that it didn't feel like, like anything really terrible could happen. But, you, you mean, so obviously, it could have done, but uh, it didn't. You're, you're young, white, British... Um, male. So, I mean, how how do you fit into all of this? What how are you, you know, being approached and on a night like that? I guess I'm thinking in terms of the conspiracists saying that you know the Americans and the CIA um, yeah. is involved in in all of this. I just wondered whether you know what kind of currency that that has. How how popular a belief that is? It's a popular belief. I mean, I say in the piece that uh, Gulen is kind of used almost subconsciously as this kind of code word for um, nefarious Western influence. I should point out, if people don't know, he's the Islamic scholar said to be, he's been American, he's said to have coordinated the coup. Yeah, but I mean, Turkey is the kind of place where there's so many conspiracy theories constantly knocking around on all sides that uh, you just kind of get used to after a while. And if you're not careful, you get affected by them yourself. You know, you start believing them. I mean, as soon as the... uh, the news started coming through about this military mobilization. Uh, there were people uh, coming up with conspiracy theories about it all being this false flag operation staged by Erdogan to try and justify grabbing more power. And some people still believe that. So take the temperature for us now, a few days on. How stable does the country feel now? How optimistic? How frightened? Because the stories that are coming out now, that an entirety of academics have been purged and a, a, mass, a mass group of teachers have been purged by Erdogan. Is the country bracing itself for him to, to tighten his stranglehold or, or is, is life just returned to normal for most people? What does Istanbul feel like at the moment? It's obviously a, a, an extraordinary period of time uh, and it feels pretty grim at the moment, to be honest. I mean, uh, I, I, I think I say in the piece about how Turkey's divided between, at the moment, uh, between these two groups of people. I mean, there's there's people still rallying on the streets five days later and in the squares uh, across the country celebrating uh, the crushing of this coup. And, uh, and then there's the rest who certainly didn't want a coup, but who are now very anxious, very fearful about what the consequences are going to be, uh, what the reaction will be. And the reaction has certainly been very, very harsh. Uh, tens of thousands have been fired. I mean, the number's going up all the time, so I can't give you a, a number now. It's probably risen since the last time I looked at it. These people have been sus- uh, suspended, detained, arrested. And obviously there's going to be terrible side effects there. You know, many people are going to get caught up uh, in the dragnet, 
at the same time, just today, uh, Turkish academics were were blocked from going abroad for t for work purposes. So I think I should also point out that these purges were already happening anyway. For a couple of years now, there's been a lot of investigations into the people suspected of being suspected of being sympathizers of of Gulen, this uh, this Pennsylvania-based Islamic cleric. Um, so there has been this sense of paranoia among uh, many people across society. Uh, but this coup attempt is kind of a way to accelerate that process. And by the, um, by the time by the time this podcast comes out later today, uh, the National yeah. Security Council will have already convened um, in Turkey. Um, and Erdogan said yesterday that following the meetings, the Council of Ministers will announce an important decision. And he says, I will not tell you now. What are you expecting to emerge from that meeting, bearing in mind that there have been calls for, you know, the death penalty to be brought back for rebels? And I don't expect the death penalty to be reintroduced. People are calling for it, but that does seem to be the kind of heat of the aftermath. It would be a massive step. What do you think the important decision might be? Uh, it's There's a lot of rumours going around. Nobody really knows. I think it's probably more likely to be something to do with setting up special courts for for, for trials of, uh, of the people who've been detained, maybe coming up with some kind of extra legal provisions to help with the investigation. I think when looking at this kind of clampdown in the aftermath of this coup, there's been, there's obviously, it's, it's commanding the headlines, but um, it's also important to say, I think that if the coup had been successful, the crackdown would have been a, a lot harsher. In fact, if it had been successful, the, I'm pretty sure there would have been a civil war because people really are devoted to Erdogan. I mean, his supporters, who make up a, a big chunk of the society, are absolutely devoted to him. And he has this huge popular appeal. Uh, he's very charismatic. And people will really, you know, they will go in front of tanks for him. And they did. And are the flags the, still I, waving outside your window now? Yeah, I can still hear them sometimes. I mean, it never stops at night as well, you know, until very late and uh, till the, the early hours. And they're still going. They'll be going tonight as well. I mean, they've called for this kind of almost constant state of national mobilization, which obviously makes things very, very tense, you know. And uh, I, I, it's it's an extraordinary time. I, I don't really know what's going to happen. Um, anything could happen. I certainly wasn't expecting a coup, but uh, nothing would surprise me now. But I, I don't think... I mean, I think if the coup had been successful, uh, it would have been a very, very grim future. But I think now it's not been successful. The future is still going to be pretty grim. Mm. I think the process of, of uh, the clampdown uh, that had already been going on in Turkey uh, is just going to be accelerated now. Brilliant. Thank you so much for writing. It's, it's a great piece. And thank you for joining us now. And we may return to you over the coming weeks, if that's all right, because uh, the story is, is progressing all the time. Uh, you look after yourself uh, uh, as well as, uh, as who knows what happens. But thank you for joining us now. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks to Thea and to Tim Crane, Judith Flanders, Neil Forsyth and William Armstrong. This week's paper is now on sale, complete with cover of Vulnerable Looking Pig, with the pieces we have discussed today, plus Anna Whitelock on the last years of Elizabeth I, Pamela Clement on Marilyn Butler's romantics, Paul Lerner on war veterans and their facial scars, David Garland on America's scandalous prison system, Adam Labor on the rantings of Chomsky, DJ Taylor on Mary Getskill's new novel, and Richard Shelton on Otters. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and follow us on Twitter. Please like us on Facebook at the TLS. And you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We will be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other subjects. We shall see you then.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.